0: drawing from the well is a podcast series from the
1: youth wellness
0: movement we are educators researchers healers parents and community members striving to repurpose schools to address the critical wellness gaps in our youth's development founded by community responsive education my name is lawrence tan but most people refer to me as lt i have been a fourth and fifth grade teacher for most of my 21 years of teaching in both districts and at a charter school. When I think about culturally sustaining pedagogies, the first thing that comes to mind was my first year of teaching in a district where the buzzword was culturally relevant. And everything was around getting things and materials that had faces and voices of those you taught. And by default, if you did so, and if you invested money in these libraries and these artifacts, then kids' test scores would soar. So for example, we were given money and you had the new Will Smith book and it was supposed to engage our students like nothing ever before. And to be honest, it did not. The district's plan ultimately did not work in the fact that there was no connection, direct connection from the students. And so even when you have great resources and material, like a book where Mufaro's beautiful daughter depicts a story in Africa, the students didn't feel it. They weren't feeling it and they weren't trying to pick it up and read and all of a sudden, you know, spark that love of learning with that. Even the most well-intentioned, culturally responsive, well-planned lesson can fail. For example, I was going to use hip hop in my classroom to do some literary teaching, ELA teaching. And at the time, this was a while ago, 50 cents was popping because I had this idea of like, well, we want to bring more consciousness to those lessons. I'm going to use Talib Kweli. So I was going to use the Talib Kweli get by song which has a dope hook and a beat, so I figured that was gonna be enough to get them feeling it. And then I was gonna go to 50 Cent and make those comparisons and connections. So I started with the Get By, and my students were not feeling it. They had no connection to the artist, they had no connection to the song, and it was floundering. In that moment, that teachable moment where I feel like, man, I'm struggling, I said, what, you uh, rather us do 50 Cent up in the club? And the class went bonkers. Even my language learners who didn't speak very much English were reciting the lyrics to the song. Okay, push pause. We're going to come back to it. And so what ended up happening was now... I started the next day, and we started with 50. And we did 50 Cent up in the club, and we did our lesson, we were analyzing lyrics, we were talking about how things, you know, made them feel when they heard the song, and this, that, and the other. And then after we analyzed 50, and after we went to where they were at, then I introduced Talib Kweli's Get And as soon as they were already making the connections and they were like, okay, you started with what we were into and now you're introducing something new to us. And they started feeling Taleb Koli as if I never ever exposed that to them, right? Like it had such a night and day effect where when I started with where they were at, then made the connection, it took a whole lot well or more or better than when I started with it. And so Then Talib Kwali went to connecting to Nina Simone and other things. And so my point is, when we're talking about culturally sustaining pedagogies and practices, we need to co-construct some of these ideas of what is culture and then make the bridges, right? That's what I've been carrying with me ever since my second year of teaching, was to start with where my students are at, and then let's see where I can bridge some gaps and then co-create and co-construct knowledge of culture, ancestry, and so forth and so on. There's a level of building trust and respect when doing this work. And we need to meet on the ground level and build that trust and respect to be able to make the connections to everything. Because a lot of times culture is constructed based on our perspectives as adults and teachers. And I think we miss the mark when we don't acknowledge, let alone start out with the youth How do I genuinely invest in what they're into? How do I co-create things and then make connections to things that I want to open up opportunities for, to share, and, you know, give them a taste of something that they might not be used to. All the while opening myself up to learning. And that makes for good practice. That makes for a wellness-centered approach to learning. And students love it. Or they like it better than... (laughs) what they're given, and eventually they look forward to it. So there was one time where we kind of had a sit-in where students wanted to participate in rallies that were going on this past year. And instead, because, you know, we weren't organizing at that moment, but people were interested enough to do something about us. So we had like a sit-in, a teaching, and we decided not to do any district-mandated curriculum and practice. And so we were doing things that were engaging and, culturally sustaining and students loved it and as a matter of fact (laughs) the next time they were like when are we going to boycott the district again when are we going to you know and so these are the kind of things that we as educators who are navigating through systems need to find ways to be able to do this kind of work on top of or in place of some of the things that are literally killing the minds of students and the energies and the spirits right and so It's a risk and it takes time and effort. This is not something that you can just do on the fly, but it's so much more meaningful. And students, they need that in this day and age. They need to be having this humanizing approach to education.
2: Welcome to Drawing From The Well. I'm your host, Tiffany Marie. This episode focuses on culturally relevant and culturally responsive pedagogy. You just heard from a phenomenal educator, LT, who centered his experiences with the babies who use their integrity to implicate districts on the impact of testing on their wellness. It was so amazing and powerful to hear about the ways in which they, in ways that maybe adults couldn't, could articulate the violences of schooling and invited LT and other adults into active listening and learning from them. Next up, you'll hear from youth expert Leandro, who shares his experiences with educators who helped him to navigate a violent society. And finally, for our Mic Check 1-2-3 segment, we hear from the one and only Cam, or others call him, Patrick Kamanyan, university professor, community activist, and high school educator from Los Angeles, California. Cam spends a little bit of time with us centering the types of culturally relevant pedagogies that saved his life and ultimately informed his trajectory as a critical educator.
1: My name is Leandro Rojas. I'm currently first year at San Francisco State University and how it was like experiencing my own culture throughout high school was very healing for myself and helping me figure out who I am and where my people came from and honestly it's one of the best things that's happened to me because like not only I got more in touch with my culture like I got to know more about myself and my family and where they're from I learned not a lot about my family's native tribes, specifically in Mexico, and learning the language even is a blessing. It's a blessing, honestly. During my graduation at Leadership High School, H2O gave me a necklace of a tribal head. What it signified to me to have the pendant was to feel connected in my roots and to feel connected at home and to also feel I'm with my family roots and to have a better understanding of who I am and what I aspire to be. It's helped me develop what I enjoy studying and what kind of history that I want to learn on my own. And I'm forever grateful that I was given the opportunity to learn about my people and my culture.
2: What's up y'all mike check mike check one two three we got nice. a very very special guest with us today i'm super excited Known this dude for uh hella long as we would say in the bay area oh. okay. <laughs> we want to welcome patrick coming with us so what's up man welcome
3: hey hey thank you all for having me really appreciate even just seeing your faces hearing your voices connecting Y'all, you know, people have deep respect for. So, you know, to start my weekend off this way is real special. That's what's Mm -hmm. up.
2: We appreciate you. And like I said, I've known you, known about you, studied you for a while now, but um, our listeners might not. So, I mean, they probably will. But for those who don't know, tell us about yourself.
3: Yeah, I mean, I'm older now, so I'm about to be 48 in March. And so I was born and raised in L.A. I moved to the Bay in uh, 2008. Oakland, I work in, you know, at the University of San Francisco. So I could probably never really comfortably claim the Bay, but whenever I go to LA, it just feels like a different place. So it's just hard to say I'm from LA, even though I got a lot of LA love and pride. Mm
2: -hmm.
3: But wherever I go, I ought to, you know, do the work I believe in. Hopefully it's aligned with the ancestors and my elders and what I perceive to be the needs of our people, multiply marginalized people, historically brilliant, though dominated people. So that's kind of where I commit my life to on weekends to sort of slow down from a lot of that. I'll take things slowly. I'll hit a hike, you know, walk around Joaquin Miller, try to eat some delicious food, although it's getting a lot more expensive these days. Cook, spend time with my loved ones, and get a lot of uh, affirmation from my dog.
2: That's what's up. That's what's up. Yeah, you come a long way because I feel like a few years ago, you used to deep fry everything. So that's mm-hmm. great to hear that uh you didn't added some vegetables into your diet and uh hikes, nature. He's yeah. still pretty discreet with what a lot of that means. And Cam mm-hmm. will say something and I'd be thinking I know what he's talking about, but he'd be talking about some other stuff. <laughs> he's good with his words. <laughs> he's smart. I was watching the interview years ago. One of your students was like, You smart. You smart. Oh you're yeah. Smart. <laughs> appreciate you. So you talked a little bit about being at USF and tell us a little bit more about like how you spend the majority of your days. Like how's life for you? Like what do you do during the week and how's that going for you?
3: Yeah, I mean it kind of varies and what I do today isn't what I did in the past. I typically wake up around 6:15. I don't get out of bed until like 6:45. Just kind of read different like current events. Uh, a lot lately around the sort of just the economy from a macro to a micro context, get a sense of this money, you know, just not to be a capitalist or to, you know, seek to profit off of people's pain or that isn't my purpose. But I think now that I'm getting older and realizing that I'm at a private university, different than, you know, working in LA Unified or if I were at a public university where they take care of your pension, you know,
4: Mm.
3: and just realizing that, you know, I have to be a little more financially literate. So I spend a lot of my mornings just reading about, you know, what's taking place in the world with, you know, nowadays around like what's happening in the Ukraine with Russian occupation, what's happening with all these different corporations in the Bay Area leaving, you know, stuff like that's what I do today. Right. And I think that might tie into, you know, what I think about, you know, my future work later, but right now I'm just trying to learn the landscape of how financial literacy, macroeconomics and microeconomics work, because that's been an area that I don't think I accounted for in my struggles for activism or education in the past. And then, you know, after that, you know, this, around 12, I kind of get out of that mode and start getting into, you know, I'm teaching four classes. So, have to start preparing for classes, making sure my agenda is right, making sure that I know what my talking points are, you know, how I'm going to set people up for activities and make sure that my slides are right. Seven something comes around, you know, that's after lunch, of course, and then teach. After that, I'll walk my dog, you know, whether it's at Mills College or Emeryville, Alameda, Bayshore, take her on a good two-mile walk, eat dinner, get ready for the next day. And then the weekend comes, I do more of more relaxing, you know, after whatever nuts and bolts need to take place, like emails and, you know, letters
4: of recommendations and stuff like that. I really resonated with that. The part where you were talking about learning Mm -hmm. money, creating your own money language without also like feeding too much into capitalism. And what I'm really interested in is a lot of us who went into education and ethnic studies Into some way of trying to liberate our minds and our community and our people. Maybe we didn't have certain conversations around money. Mm -hmm. And maybe the conversations that we did have around money were very much rooted in capitalism. Mm -hmm. So I'm interested in that part of your story. Like, it's one thing to teach critical race theory, but it's also another thing to be like, but when I'm 66 years old, am I gonna have a pension? I spent all this time making sure my folks got this knowledge, but when I am older and maybe it's not as many people around me, do I have the things and the resources and the land and the experience and the connection that I need to survive and still live good? Mm -hmm. So I'm really interested in us going in that direction as we talk about critical race theory and yeah,
3: I mean, you know, if we're talking about critical race theory or critical race method in a sense, and we think about how race is central to, you know, our epistemological and ontological uh, beings.
2: What's that? What's that? What you talking about? What is that? Ways
3: of knowing. Oh. Okay. right. Ways of being. You know, we got to think about how just as racialized people of color, and in my context, you know, Philippine ex Filipino. You know, my father died in 2008, and I didn't realize I had to pay for his funeral, right? So I walk into this cemetery, mortuary or whatever, and my mom's telling me, And she doesn't have much resources. I'm helping her out a lot. And she tells me I have to pay for a Catholic funeral. I'm like, okay, whatever that means. That means a burial. That means a burial plot. That means church. When I went in, I got quoted. I was like, it was almost like the first time someone broke up with me. You know, it was like that devastating to hear what they said I had to pay. And I was crushed and, you know, I had to find a way, You know. put everything on credit card, bought a plot of land, you know, buried him, you know, and it was cool that, you know, at the end of the funeral, my mother, who wasn't very affirming loving, but in a different way, she didn't get along with my father's side. They always had this sort of deficit perspective of her and to invite my father's family to the funeral and then like, you know, be able to pay for food. When she said something like your father would be proud or something like we held a good funeral or they know that, you know, your father was loved or something like that gave me that like bit of pride that I had been hoping for but didn't get. But then my mother died five years later and I had to do the same thing. Good thing I buried them on top of each other, but I had to pay for other expenses. And that put me in super credit card debt. And I didn't realize how much debt that put me in until like later on because I was making payments, but my debt wasn't decreasing. The interest rate was far outpacing my monthly payments. You know, I was digging a hole, digging a hole, and I was dealing with all my stress and other parts of my life by indulging. And then I didn't have homies who could indulge with me because I didn't kick it with the big homies. I kicked it with other homies. You know, a lot of times I was paying for it. You know what I mean? And it just kept adding up. And um, it wasn't until something kicked in that I realized that um, this, it wasn't sustainable. And I think that's when I sort of made a move towards a different direction and knew that I needed to spend less than I made and invest the difference. And I think I'm in a much better place and far from where I need to be if when I do finally decide to stop working, that I can sustain you know, my life to some level of degree that has the quality I hope to have. And I didn't learn that from my family. There was nothing about our income that people said we needed to save. It was just about whatever, right? <laughs> whatever, it was spend what you had. Spend more. You have credit cards. Use it. That was just part of the hegemony that we
5: thought was the American dream. Mm. I mean, I appreciate those witnessings, Cam. And it's honestly, brother, it's tough to hear the ways that the structural realities interrupt our rituals, our processes, our transitions of our loved ones. And having to cultivate a relationship with something that we know is not of us and not for us, right? Like the overall movement of money, which is really just our, that's just the energy of our people, right? In paper and digital form, they're suffering commodified. And I guess I'm wondering, because you're really talking about ways to survive and then survive the shifts and transitions that are going to come for all of us. How do we sustain ourselves outside of exchanging our labor for these places, right? When I think of survival, I think of, culture and what's passed on to us, right? Those sort of practices and ways of being that allow us to survive. And I'm wondering, as you were coming up and just sort of going through life, when were your some of your lessons or survivances, practices, rituals that have helped you survive that you now are implementing in your life?
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, Tiffany mentioned a group of us the other day that what Our survival mechanisms of the past are something that we might want to rethink in the present. But for me, the initial inspiration was coming into critical consciousness about the history of the radical Philippine resistance to Spanish colonization and U.S. occupation in the homeland you know, at the at the time I was really engaged in a lot of reactionary behavior and, and self-defeating resistance. And I found life in the destruction, in my participation in the destruction of people who experience life just like me. I really there was nothing more exhilarating to me from age eleven to age twenty-three. There was nothing more exhilarating to me than inflicting pain on my people, like I would come back, like I scored a touchdown. It would be like going to the locker room after winning a game, after, you know, I participated in some horizontal violence, right? And then like the love that my homeboys would give and the laughter that it would create, the pride that we would feel and celebrate Mm -hmm. after, you know, inflicting pain and sometimes high levels of pain, there was nothing like it until I realized I was doing exactly what the system wanted me to do. And then just like coming to the process of understanding what that meant was cathartic. And then committing myself to being, you know, the type of teacher I wish I had prior to hating school, which I thought was high school when I got pushed out in the 10th grade. But after, you know, later reflection, I realized I hated school from the beginning. You know, I was getting bad grades earning or whatever, assigned bad grades as early as first and even second grade. And as a second grader, I had under a 2.0. We don't measure GPAs for second graders, but my GPA, like, if you look at the grade distribution was like a 1.48 as a seven year old, as a second grader. Mm-hmm. And so I didn't think I earned poor grades because I was unintelligent. I think reflecting back that I earned poor grades because I would watch my teachers teach and ask myself, you know, what does this have to do with me? Cause at home, You know, my parents migrated here in search of a better life. And then I think they found out shortly after that, whether they were in denial or not, that they were being alienated from this so-called American dream. Right. Malcolm would say is the American nightmare and experienced differently, of course, by different racialized communities. Right. So what Malcolm meant probably was a little bit more intense anti-blackness than what my parents felt in through the institutionalized white supremacy but it still impacted the family. And that sadness, I think evolved into anger and then morphed into rage, which I witnessed as early mm-hmm. as six years old. And it didn't make sense, you know what I mean? And like what would be crying and sadness and apathy, at one stage would then be physical violence as a you know kindergartner as a first grader, as a second grader. And then dis- disengagement, right? I guess Herb Cole would call that will not learning. And so I hated school as early as kindergarten, first grade, second grade, but, you know, it didn't lead to me being pushed out until the 10th grade. You know, so part of my, you know, radical healing, if you will, came when I decided to be the type of educator I wish I had prior to being pushed out, but now trying to help people provide the type of education that I wish I had even before hating school as early as kindergarten. And so the ways that I, I don't know if you said survive or you know what language you used, but Was to one work on myself, right? I wanted to unlearn a lot of that stuff internally. And so I ended up, you know, one of the homies, Art Nelson Concordia, who was a teacher of ethnic studies in San Francisco, now in Santa Barbara, under attacks by Fox News. And, you know, I think he introduced me to some books that gave me the knowledge that supported feelings I had of anti imperialism. And so now I understood historically how colonization and imperialism had damaged the Philippines and you know how that impacted our people and then how that was present with me in the moment. And so I think I started unlearning as much of that as I could. And then when I became a teacher, I tried to practice that instructionally and interculturally or personally with the students I taught, predominantly black students at Crenshaw High School. And as much as I had like black friends and black neighbors and black homeboys growing up, you know I didn't have a familiarity with you know, blackness or black people or black culture, black students, you know, outside of like playing on the streets or playing sports together or uniting against a common enemy, perceived common enemy. But I knew that my anti-imperial sensibility would unite me with other people negatively impacted by colonization and imperialism. Mm -hmm. But over time, I created curriculum based on the process I went through for self and social transformation, so that students could apply those types of readings, analysis and praxis to their own lives so that they could unlearn some of the colonial, you know, hegemonic ideologies that they may have been introduced to, internalized and reproduced on their own terms and in the ways that they chose to. And I think, you know, that was also healing all that time in the classroom, And then I just kind of like extended that out into spaces that I found myself in moving forward. Mm -hmm. Community organizations, you know, teacher education, the field of education through my scholarship, through my organizing, through my institutional change, through now more policy and systemic change. Mm -hmm. If I was
2: watching this as your um, lifetime story, (laughs) right, it shifted. It was I don't know if it happened during the commercial break or not, but it went from. this guy in the streets inflicting harm and pain on folks. You gave us the like vignette of what was happening at home. And then it was this guy who didn't like school, who got pushed out of school. And then it was this guy who was doing transformative work in classrooms with young people. It feels like there was a chunk that's missing that I think intimately connects with this idea of cultural relevancy that I'm interested in like, what was in between that time that we left out? What led to the shift in consciousness? Mm-hmm. There's these books that you talk about that mm-hmm. art gave you. Mm-hmm. I think books had the power to do that. But I also think that living texts also are a little bit more
3: influential. And so mm-hmm. is there something in there that we missing? Yeah, I was just feeling like my five-minute window to answer a question was coming up. So I was like, let me get to this part. And I think an under-narrated part when I do share this with people is the role that exposure to Anti-imperial organizing in the Filipino community has contributed to my capacity as an educator. It began with reading, but reading for me was only as useful as the dialogue it provided me access to. And mm. you know, I was like just now entering this sort of critical conscious stage. And I went to this Dodgers at San Diego Padres game in San Diego, it's different the Dodger Stadium. I mean, even though Dodger Stadium still has all these contradictions. But it's different in San Diego, and maybe it was the seats I bought. But the national anthem came on. This is ninety-seven, I think ninety-six. I just say I was like, I'm gonna sit. You know, what did Grasscast say? You know, um, Jewish people do not pledge allegiance to the swastika. But you know, he used a different word. But people of the color will pledge allegiance or something like that to the flag that accosted you, something like that. And so I'm, I'm gonna sit down. You know. I took so much pride that I sat down during the national anthem in San Diego, military city with all these, you know, what I perceive to be conservative sort of looking at me strangely and power to the people. And so I'm driving back and I hear on the radio, (laughs) homeboy Kiwi who, you know, I grew up with. In fact, we didn't get along at one point and his old homeboy, said, shot at me once and we sorted that issue out and we, we had a truce and we united against another perceived common enemy. But, you know, a few years prior, an enemy, like, the head came inches from inflicting pain, if not death, among me and my homeboys. And now I'm, he's on the radio, some kind of radio show on 92.3 The Beat after the wake up show, some kind of critically conscious cat. And he's talking about something anti imperial. So I decided I'm going to call up, you know, the radio show. And I'm, hey, my analysis was off. You know, I was like, Illuminati's. the the, Whatever, the trilateral commission and JFK is part of this, and all this sort of stuff, right?
5: Not the trilateral commission. Yeah, I was like... Them fools. Right,
3: exactly. (laughs) And and so he invites me. He says like, man, you're a different person now, you know? So he invites me into the space and it's, you know, more anti-imperial cats. And, you know, one dude who eventually became this director or whatever that position is called for the Filipino Community Center in San Francisco, but we were just kind of like youth at the time, 20-year-olds, and they brought me into this space called the Balak Tassan Collective. And there were artists, there were poets, there were visual artists, Filipino who wanted to use the art to, you know, whatever. Uh, what I would say today is disrupt dehumanization, you know, overturn US imperialism in the Philippines, and to align their art with the national democratic movement in the Philippines. And so I wasn't an artist. I was, I'll join and I'll play other roles. And, you know, I hosted events and, but just watching their organizing, watching how they brought people in who weren't quite at the level of critical consciousness that we were at so that we could organize them, mobilize them into a larger collective so that they can be then play a role in this larger, larger web of a movement. It really helped me understand how to organize like classroom sessions, units and stuff like that. And then at the university, I had a professor named Brian Alexander, who was a professor at Cal State LA. You know, I got into Cal State LA through the Gang Violence Bridging Project, which was like short-lived two-year program. Then I transferred into this thing called EOP, Educational Opportunities Program. But there I met Professor Brian Alexander, a gay black man who really introduced me to what a humanizing education looked like. You know, he had us do performance as part of our assessment. I mean, we have to do the academic writing stuff too, and that's not where I performed well, but I understood that we could embody some of the knowledge that we were learning, right? And some simple things like can you perform what oppression looks like? Can you show us what your reality is? How would you go from your reality to your ideal? And just like the movements of our body, narrating it, you know, telling stories and all these sort of things showed me. It was like the model for what I wanted and what I eventually used in the classroom. And so that was that period of 96 to 99 was immersing myself in the Filipino arts organizing space that was connected. Even though I wasn't part of this space, they were connected to the Bayon organization, sort of like this pro-people space. And then at the university, my professor, Brian Alexander, was showing me what an education to recover from the dehumanization of colonial miseducation looked like. It's that kind of like commitment to study, commitment to watching theory applied into social practice brought me to my first year as a teacher. And the trippy thing was I didn't apply it at first. So I was the cool teacher who, you know, wore slacks, but students appreciated me still. They could see something because they say things like, Cam, you're the only teacher we know who wears slacks and sags. (laughs) And even when I got hired at Crenshaw, because I got hired at a school that I was pushed out of, right? I took the job at Crenshaw High School because I used to go there to watch basketball games because they were always one of the best in the city. But then I took the job there because after my interview, the assistant principal, a woman named Cassandra Roy, told me, look, and I wore a suit. I had bought a suit from men's warehouse. I thought I was like conformist. After the interview, she said, look, we want to hire you because we think your history as a gang member. I didn't tell him I was gang related, but she said, I think your history as a gang member, you could serve as a positive role model to <laughs> the black gangs at Crenshaw. And I was like, oh man, this is it. you know. So I ended up there. But a theory didn't show up to me when I started to teach. And I would try to teach my students how to conform to the miseducation in the textbooks, because I didn't get trained. I saw it in my university class. I saw it in the community organizing. But in my teaching credential program, they didn't teach us how to translate that. In fact, they were like that kind of stuff is not really teaching; that's activism. So mm-hmm. I would sit here and try to follow these, you know, textbooks, guiding questions, answer the questions, and then grade people based on this sort of standardized text that I was assigning them. That was, you know, written by the state, that was approved by you know central government. And then when students resisted it, I would try to bang on them. I was banging for the system. I was like, you better fucking conform, homie. I'm a, f- You know, you don't want none of this. Trust. You know, kind of like that, right? And then that summer, summer of 2000, I reflected. I was like, man, I was really the type of teacher I hated. You know, I was cool. But after my communication style that resonated with a lot of the students, after the nonverbal communication that students appreciated wore off, they were over it. And luckily it didn't kick in until March, but from March to June, you know, I might as well have been a Republican white man who hated black students and brown children. But that summer I was like, you know, what do I do? And so I went back to what did I learn to unlearn the hegemony I was reproducing as a youth? So I told you, I sided Kiwi and Kiwi and his homeboys, we were lived in the same neighborhood of Koreatown. You know, I had to go back and forth between Echo Park and Koreatown. My mother was in Mid-City, they called Mid-City Koreatown. My father, Echo Park, right? They were divorced. But we were all together in Koreatown. It was like fighting for a limited set of resources. So they at a party shot at us and it was gonna get bad because we were so close. We lived so close to each other. And you know, this was sort of the time we started getting enough money to have accumulate weapons and stuff. And somebody, one of my homeboys, he's actually an actor now. I don't know if I just name his name, and I won't, but he mediated this conversation with one of their leaders, right? One of their shot callers, if you will. And we decided to meet at the top of a mountain. You know, we were like 20 of them and like five of us, because my generation only had five. This next generation, there were more, so we're still trying to recruit our base. But we went and we talked about what our issues were, you know, why we were beefing, turns out we were beefing. A lot of it had to do with like girls, popularity, like who was the doper writer, who was more notoriously known for fighting, who was getting credited for the best attacks on others. And, you know, we realized that we in fact had a common experiences and in fact, common enemy. And so we decided we were going to have a truce. And so, you know, this isn't transformative, but we started to move together against perceived common enemies. And that brought a bond. We were bonding over this, right? And that was probably our displaced anger uniting us against something together. Hmm. But it was stories that connected us, that united us against a perceived common enemy together that then I said, I am going to use this assignment that Brian Alexander gave me as a university student, called Cultural Narratives. Mm -hmm. I connected that, and then I then evolved that into autoethnography. And my first unit, my second year teaching, was having students write and then perform autoethnographies.
4: You know, Mm -hmm. who
3: are you? What experiences Mm -hmm. shaped who you are Mm -hmm. today? What does that mean for your community? How does that make you feel? Who does the community need you to be? based on that and what pathway do you need to go to be who your community needs to be. And like I saw the class shift from a bunch of students who had internalized all these deficit perspectives about one another, or are projecting that onto classmates in the class. And because of the stereotype they were projecting onto their peers would justify their dehumanization that they would impose on one another. They would rationalize the dehumanization by using the language of our oppressor to define their peers. But then after all this sort of storytelling, you can see that some students' perception of another student as someone worth dehumanizing began to start recognizing parts of their humanity that they understood about themselves. And so they would see now, see onto their peers parts of themselves that they would want others to be empathetic towards. And all of a sudden the whole classroom felt connected when prior to the unit, you had young people who were competing for a limited set of resources, right? I wanna be the baddest Mm. motherfucker in here. I wanna be the cutest person in here. I wanna be the smartest. I wanna have the freshest gear, whatever that sort of hierarchical competition for status was. And now we were connected, students were engaged. And you know, it's a lot harder to disengage, engage students than it is to engage, disengage students. But that's all I had. That's all I came out of that summer with. So, you know, second unit, they still trusted me. So they weren't disengaging. So they were doing the conformist stuff just because they had love for me and love for each other based on what we did in the first unit. But then after, you know, third unit, less trust. Fourth unit, eventually, you know, disengaged. from this class, so y'all, this is whack. And then I had to go back to other parts of my life that had taught me how to unlearn hegemony, to practice counter hegemony, to engage in my own process of humanization, right? To disrupt the dehumanization of imposed self-hate, divide and conquer, and sub-oppression and conformity, to develop in myself newer levels of knowledge and love of self, newer levels of solidarity, newer levels of self-determination. I had to revisit what helped me be more humanized in that way, and how can I create learning opportunities for students to go through their own process to do the same on their own terms, in their own image, in their own voice, and in their own interest. So I started developing more units, more units. And it wasn't until like, you know, enough summers passed that I had enough for two semesters to not even worry about ever disengaging students. Hmm. And now that's the case. And it's even the case at the university, right? So, you know, I had to keep developing practices from beginning of a teacher till now, where I don't even really have to worry too much about planning, or even knowing if what I plan is going to be fun or effective or meaningful because I've already practiced it. I implemented it. I tested it. I've seen the results. And I know that pretty much everything that I've used in the past and improved on is going to be meaningful to the learners, whether in high school that I taught or the university where I'm at now.
2: Mm. I don't think a lot of people acknowledge this, but I learned about you. I was transcribing your interviews with Jeff. And at that time, you was like teacher of the year. You had been teacher of the year already. You was a big man, and I was in the Bay Area. You were still in LA doing your thing. I learned about you transcribing these interviews. I was like, who is this dude? Like The way you were just describing it, I was, oh my God. And I feel like not enough people, I don't know, maybe you lived it up, but I feel like at the time, you were doing things in Southern California that was setting the stage largely for a culture in the Bay Area too. Mm-hmm. It's not to say folks weren't doing intense work, but your name... Years after that, it was a big deal. And it was a lot of folks in the Bay Area, particularly walking around trying to sound like you, trying to dress like you, trying to talk like you. I can't tell you the number of people I know who did autoethnographies. I did autoethnographies. I think in music we do it, in film we do it, but in teaching it's kind of this subconscious thing where we don't acknowledge the people who set the culture largely for the discourse that drastically improves young people's lives. And I do want to stop and say that you... You were one of those people who, as a person from the Bay Area, you said uh, dominant culture in the Bay Area around transforming the discourse and largely what we would call culturally responsive and relevant pedagogy. I think it's safe to say that you were one of the game changers in that respect, but we talk about it loosely. Mm-hmm. I want to know how would you define that though? Like what you mm-hmm. did was... It has no small feat in terms of the uh, folks you were working with, the context that you were working within, and then it's reach. Mm -hmm. Like it had reach. So how would you define, Mm -hmm. people use the terms loosely, I think now it's a buzzword. It was not super popular in universities at the time. It was something that was really counter to what A lot of teacher ed programs, as you said, and folks in higher ed were pushing but now it's a buzzword that it actually scares me, but everybody feel like they're doing they're culturally relevant. Everybody feel like they are today. That's sound bites in people's interviews now. You know you mm-hmm. got to say that in the Bay Area, and I do attribute a lot of that to you to Jeff, to other groundbreaking folks who are doing that work. But how would you define it? Everybody mm-hmm. think they're doing it, but how would you mm-hmm. define it?
3: Yeah, when I first heard it, I was definitely just like, you know, I still get goosebumps when I hear it and I'm embarrassed, I'm shy. When I hear it and I try to pretend I don't hear it, I try to act cool, but, you know, I appreciate you so much for verbalizing it. To know that somebody was positively impacted by your anything is very humbling. And I'm honored that you would share that with me. I know that a lot of the, you know, give the roses to people while they're here emerged around the time when Nipsey Hussle was killed. So this is like the culturally irrelevant teaching drink champs where Nori and <laughs> and the DJ sort of like show love to you know all these MCs while while wait, they're we're we gonna do it we're gonna do
2: it we're
3: gonna do it give it up for K. <laughs> yeah
2: give it
0: up oh, and,
3: so, and so thank you so much Tiffany because you're actually a person I turn to now to find inspiration and all of the work that you all do Candice, your research and Jewel your humanity is makes me feel like a dinosaur overnight but. I feel I find youth when I see you, see your humanity and see your work. So thank you all as well. If people started to talk like me, dress like me, Eunice is fine. I want people to find their own authenticity. I think that's the most effective way of being a person, teacher, activist is to you know exist as themselves so that we learn what democracy looks like in other forms. Mm. Because I learned a lot of who I am now, is people being themselves in my presence as you know, gender expansive, intersectionally critical, you know, multiply marginalized people that in the past I had a very narrow understanding of. You don't need to have rage. You don't need to be rude to be a, an effective educator of others, right? You don't have to, right? Use what you have to your advantage. Don't pretend to be something you're not. If it's privilege you are trying to disguise, I, as a you know, who has male privilege, it's just our responsibility to use our privilege to benefit those who are silenced, right? So, how do we do that? Like, I hear a lot of rappers will mimic someone until they find their own voice. Mm
2: -hmm. If
3: that's the case with teaching, people want to mimic Tiffany or whoever until they do it their own way, then cool. If that's the case with what happened with me. You know, I'll just say that my work is culturally relevant pedagogy or culturally responsive or, you know, even community responsive or even critical pedagogy. You know, maybe because I don't quite have the language skills to name something anew. I know in academia, people get credit for naming something anew. And Stovall told me that one of my greatest strengths is connecting my ideas to, you know, established ideas of the past. Mm-hmm. All credit to people who have the brilliance to name something new. I am just doing this work and then finding stuff that I can say that I am either building on or you know, inform my work or whatever. How I define culturally relevant pedagogy today, I think I'm committing to the word of like humanizing pedagogy. And somebody had told me, Well, you know, you might not have cachet because you aren't first to market. I have to look that up, which is kind of in line with my desire to um (laughs) macroeconomics. I was like, first to market, you know, so I guess if you're like the marathon, right? Or Mm -hmm. like Wu-Tang forever, 36 Chambers of Death and whatever like new concept, you know, AT Aliens, right? I guess if you're first to market, like you'll always kind of be remembered, as someone with a concept, but I'm still committing to humanizing pedagogy because, you know, I've heard criticisms of it, but the text that first changed my life was Pedagogy the oppressed, and the concept of humanization and dehumanization, mm-hmm. important concepts in my life. And then, you know, Bell Hooks, you know, talking about, yes, as a phenotypically white appearing Brazilian Freire is racially privileged. However, the abstract concepts in his writing help affirm bell hooks's education in humanity in these ways, and so that's what I took from him. Yeah. But then at the same time, later on, I saw Grace Lee Boggs, James Boggs, talked about you know this concept of a new human. Zeus Leonardo and Ronald Porter talked about humanizing violence. Mm-hmm. When Django Paris talked about humanizing research, Sadia Hartman and all this tradition of people who talk about humanization or humanizing because they understand the dehumanization for some anti-blackness, for other state sanctioned violence, for Stovall engineered conflict, for me, vertical violence, for, you know, whoever, they understand the impact that that dehumanization had on a people. And so when I say humanization, it's me really projecting my own past growth, onto the pedagogy I try to implement in my teaching. For me, in the 2015 Teach Like Lives Depend on it, I said humanizing pedagogy was culturally relevant, critical, and led to critical literacy. After growing since then, and everything I've learned from queer, transnational feminists, from people with disabilities or so-called disability—I don't know how we. So I apologize for that. People who are from working class and surviving poor communities, people who are having to navigate xenophobic policies. Everything I've learned since that time has me rethinking the notion of a humanizing pedagogy. It has to be start with you know critically caring relationships. What we all know, Angela Valenzuela had called authentically caring relationships and Tyrone Howard. And I cite those two because that's who helped me think about this stuff conceptually and theoretically early on. Tyrone Howard wrote an article, an empirical study, both empirical studies, hearing footsteps in the dark around the most effective teachers of black children, elementary school age children. He mm-hmm. talked about culturally connected caring. And so I think for me, any kind of critically caring relationships has to be culturally connected and authentic political relationships where students understand that we are seeking first to understand their humanity before we try to get them to understand what we're teaching them. And so I think once they understand that we're not going to silence them based on our projection of you know respectability politics or Eurocentric notions of people of color so that they can more easily conform to a system that despises their humanity. Once they know that our relationship to them is not to help them conform to that dehumanization, once they understand that, look, we're on the right side of history. And I see you. I feel you. I understand you. I love you. And here's what I have to say.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: And if you're down with it, go at it at your own pace, on your own terms. Cool, I love you regardless. And I think once that happens, I think that is the foundation for what comes next, right? So the first, for me, humanizing pedagogy is what I would say culturally relevant. Pedagogy, teaching, responsiveness is for me. Mm -hmm. Critically caring relationships. Seek first to understand, then be understood. Second is, it has to be intersectionally relevant we talk about culturally relevant, but then a lot of times it's a, culture is a proxy for race. Mm. It might be like an implicit allusion to class, depending on how we illustrate that from our examples. But for me, just my growth, right? So what I appreciate about Tiffany, Castro, Cristio Castillo, all these students I had at USF who were gender expansive, Savannah Shange as a colleague and friend, I'm sorry, of all these people I am not even remembering right now who didn't shame me for my limited understandings of gender. Jewel, I think you might even been at that Shanghai talk she did USF, I believe. Yes. Yeah, right? Mm-hmm. And so they didn't shame me. Like These are people who, I guess, in the language of today would say they called me in. They didn't just call me out. They called me in. So I think there was something mutually respectable about our relationship where they felt like they wanted to call me in versus call me out. They introduced me to new ideas, which then I internalized as high expectations in ways that I felt loved and supported. So I guess that's critically caring relationships. Mm -hmm. It helped me understand that there are different prisms of people's identities that I needed to account for. And not as a like an, an identity politics, right, about who we are and the importance of who we are. But while people dismiss the sort of trivial value of identity politics, as far as I'm concerned, that is the basis upon which we will build on. Once people understand who they are, develop a love of self, then we could tie that into so the I guess, the more valued transformation of material conditions in people's lives. Mm-hmm. It helped me understand that, right? And so... It helped me understand that there are cognitive differences, that we have to account for hearing and not hearing, seeing and not seeing, different physical abilities, You know, the spectrum of gender, politics, and identity, and other multiple marginal identities. I have to understand that sometimes we, as cis, hetero, oftentimes hyper-masculine performing men, we are part of a legacy of privilege that center our voices and privilege what we have to say while silencing all the non-centered voices, too oftentimes people who are ascribed female identities at birth, who do not credit them for their work, oftentimes taking on more labor so that this message, mostly coming from men, get credit for. And so like We have to understand relevance beyond culture as a proxy for race and class. Because sometimes people identify more with their gender, non-binary uniqueness, their physical abilities, their hearing or seeing experiences more than they do their ethnic and racial identities and we have to have an education that allow people, you know, multiply marginalized people an entry point into learning that has been historically alienating to them even in the name of justice that we say is culturally relevant but mm-hmm. is really a narrow notion of what different people's cultural realities are when it doesn't account for the intersectional lenses and identities and humanities that they bring into the classroom. So it has to be critically caring, right? Then it has to be intersectionally relevant. Then it has to lead towards socially transformative learning. Hmm. So it can't just be getting good grades, learning how to take tests, how to write essays so that they can access the highest levels of American schooling in order to Hopefully move more fluidly between the different levels of social mobility and therefore, you know, get a good job, save enough for a down payment for a car and then a home and then live comfortably away from a community that groomed you
2: mm-hmm.
3: as a notion of success. Right. That's sub conformity and sometimes leads to deculturalization. The learning has to be about preparing students to use math, to use science, to use literacy, to use social science, to use physical education, to use gardening or farming, to use any knowledge we're teaching them in school to transform unjust social conditions. Not to conform to a system that despises their humanity, but to use their education to disrupt the dehumanization of a social system that is at odds with the history and dignity of their people. And so we have to rethink assessment. We have to assess right social transformative learning has to assess young people on the type of learning that can disrupt unjust dehumanizing social conditions. Assess them on that. You're gonna get graded on your ability to use what you know to disrupt dehumanization. We need to teach young people to develop the social compassion necessary for people to unify across perceived differences. We don't have to kick it. We don't have to party. We don't have to build all the time. That's cool, too. I mean, of course, right? We all have pockets of people we build with, but we have to unite across perceived differences. You know, there's that book, right? Why are all the black children sitting together in the cafeteria? I don't have a problem with all the black children sitting together in the cafeteria. I have a problem with the concept that you can't sit with us, right? And then taking pride on you can't sit with us because we're like, whatever, cooler than you. In the classroom, in the community, you know we have to be able to unite on the right side of justice. And so we have to teach young people the critical compassion that can unite people empathetically across difference. And then the third thing is we need to teach young people to critically think. Huey P. Newton said that power is the ability to define phenomenon and make it act in an according manner. Karl Marx said that when theory grips the masses, it becomes a material force, right? So thinking and doing, we have to teach them there's a relationship between what they learn and what they do, right? Between theory and praxis, between words and action. Mm -hmm. And I think that's, for me, how I would define culturally relevant pedagogy to me as a humanizing pedagogy, which is built on critically caring relationships, intersectional relevance, and socially transformative learning. Mm.
5: I know we're wrapping up, and I just want to, you know, offer brother cam like how i came into relation with you and that part about what we're learning from these models i think i was assigned a paper we had to look at like as tiff said who are the people that we should be looking to for the future of the work and i was assigned you and reached out it was actually a work on critically caring pedagogies you responded to me because i was you know playing with different things at the time i think i said peace uhuru or you know ubuntu and you responded to me in your language, right, in a collective way, and you had the tagline, one thing that you always say, right, which is like, stay dangerous, you know? And so I'm thinking about what it means to do this work that we know is inherently, because of all the things you mentioned about the state, dangerous. And I just wanna offer appreciation for you for inviting us to, to be in relationship to the struggle, which we know inherently brings conflict and possible antagonism, and to move in ways that are collective.
3: Thank you for that memory. Uh, you know, my appreciation for you is mutual. We've built a relationship over the uh, recent years through our connection at UCLA, but even beyond that, I appreciate all that you've taught me and all that you know. I learned from you know our relationship, and then Jewel, of course, you know you showed love to me in the Bay, and you know being an outsider from the Bay, being accepted with somebody of your you know status, and is affirming to me to know that as someone from LA, I can also contribute to spaces of people who got hella you know love for the bay. Thank you both for mm. that. Ashe. We
2: appreciate you Cam for coming out and blessing us. Give it up one more time y'all for the one. Yeah.
3: Yo, yo. Hey. Hey. I'm gonna take a shot of coffee <laughs> <laughs>
2: from today's episode whether it's from that meeting that Cam and some of his mentors had on the hill to the testimonies that LT shared about the elementary school children I think back to Leandro's necklace as a symbol of who and where he comes from but I also think of it as protection and the type of symbolism necessary to help us make sense of a culturally relevant or culturally sustaining pedagogy it pushes us to think about the types of resources and tools that we are giving young people that protect them in this world that often is made up against them that protects them in a world that is not invested always in their well-being that reminds them of the power of who they come from and the power of who they can become as they work toward self-determined futures. I'm so grateful in that regard for the young people who come to us every day, refusing to conform to our fears and who are ready to stand in their power. to this episode of Drawing from the Well brought to you by the Youth Wellness Movement. I'm your host, Tiffany Marie. This podcast is co-produced by yours truly and John Reyes with music by my boy Jansen V. Drawing from the Well is supported by Community Responsive Education. Continue the conversation at youthwellness.com.